0: Well, it is good to see you all and I'm happy to be here and I'm happy to be coming to the end of yet another study. So today, after my studies, um, we will do our last message on the book of Joel if my count was correct, and sometimes every week I update the number on my document, but some weeks I forget, but if my count is correct, this is our 23rd message on the book of Joel, and it'll be our final message, and I'm looking forward to this. So with all of that, let's turn our focus to Joel chapter 3, and before we do that, I'm going to open us in a word of prayer, and then we'll jump back into our study. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your continual presence amongst your people. Lord, we feel the love and the fellowship when we gather together on Sundays, and we just thank you so much for the special place that is called Lakeside. Lord, there are believers all over the world gathering together today, and we just thank you that our little place and our little part of the universal church of God is so precious to us. I pray today for our final study in the book of Joel, and I pray, Lord, as we go through these things, that you'll open our eyes, that you'll encourage us about the ultimate outcome of all of human history, and that you'll help us, Lord, to be able to gain strength from your word to persevere in the midst of difficult times. We ask all of this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. As we have spent the last few weeks, couple of months, going through Joel, once we hit a transition point in the middle of chapter 2, Most everything in the book started pointing to the future. And as we went through chapter one, of course, we were dealing with the immediate effects on the people that received the letter of the locust plague that had come through and wiped out everything. And then in chapter two, there was that call to repent. And if you don't, there'll be a foreign invading army that will destroy you. But if you do repent, things will be okay. And then Joel started pointing to the future and as we've been going through it, we've had a future look because the things that Joel talks about, by and large, still have not occurred They're in the future. So the book transitioned from the present issues that were facing its original recipients, the people of Judah, which was God's discipline on them and the call to repent, And began to focus on the future when God was going to restore His people and would execute judgment on His enemies. And as I've been looking and teaching, we've had to necessarily go into the book of Revelation, talking about these events, talking about the great tribulation, the return of Christ, and the millennial kingdom. But as we come to the final few verses of Joel, it occurred to me I want to go back and reset... The condition of the people that first read our text today. In other words, for us, we look at these rightly as looking at the future and we we see all these things, but as we go through these final few verses, I just thought it would be helpful for us to go back and remember what was the condition of the original people who heard this when they heard it we've moved so far into the future because of the nature of the book. I know even with me, I've kind of lost sight of what things were like for the people that heard it. And things for them were absolutely horrible. As they read these words or had them read to them, as they heard them from the prophet Joel, their contemporary, their lives were still a catastrophe they were still living in the immediate aftermath of the devastation of the locust plagues described in chapter one what did that look like it was despair and devastation and I won't reread all of chapter one I'm going to read some of it because I believe it helps illuminate these final verses But Joel presented a picture and said, What has occurred to you is the type of thing that's never occurred before. And in fact, it's so devastating, you'll be talking about it for generations to come. And it all centered on those locusts. Verse 4 of chapter 1. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. In other words, as we've covered before, every single crop of every type was devastated and destroyed. And each wave of the locust was worse than the one before. And it's almost as though you might see after the first one, well, there's a little bit left. Nope, the second one comes through. Well, maybe there's a, nope. And over and over until there's nothing, there's no food. Absent a miracle, at the time the words of Joel were uttered and the people first heard them, they were in danger of starving and dying of thirst. They couldn't worship God. The worship for them centered on daily sacrifices which required flour and wine and oil, and they were all gone. The locust had wiped out everything. Even the animals were suffering. Verse 18 of chapter 1, How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle wander aimlessly because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. In other words, it wasn't just the people that were going to starve to death. The animals didn't have anything. And it seems like the locust plagues either ushered in or coincided with drought-type conditions that were equally devastating. The land was parched and devoid of water. Verses 19 and 20. To you, O Lord, I cry, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and the flame has burned up all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you for the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. There is absolutely nothing. There's no water. There's no food. The people have nothing, the animals have nothing. I can't truly grapple in my mind with what that would look like in a country like America. Because we're upset when the hot water heater goes out. (laughs) Or if we can't find the water bottles we like and we have to drink tap water. This was devastating. And of course chapter 2 Joel's message was, unless you repent, it's going to get worse. We don't know the specifics then, but in some way they had turned their backs on God. And the overarching message of the book of chapter 2, the opportunity presented to the people that first heard these words was, turn back to God. Chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. And with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments, now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. And as I taught through it, I mentioned that I think, based on all of the context, that probably historically the people did repent that this generation may have been restored, But at the time they heard the words of Joel, that hadn't happened yet. The promises that God would one day vindicate his people were true and real. But when Joel was written, when they came to the end of these words, where we are today, when they first heard these words, they were in the midst of calamity. It was still misery. There was no food, there was no crops, there was no water. Cut off from all the necessities of earthly life and also cut off from even being able to worship God. It was a dark and scary and foreboding time. So you can imagine for them, when Joel starts talking about a future of prosperity and peace and abundance and everything's okay, from a fleshly perspective, I think most of our reactions would be that sounds too good to be true. It was true. But I think understanding and being reminded of the devastation and the condition of the people that first heard the words will help make the promises and the words at the very end of the book come alive a little bit. As Joel brings his book to a close, he paints a picture for his hearers that was such a contrast to what they currently see and felt and touched that it could have only caused them to marvel and wonder. In fact, in our vernacular, Joel was painting for them what we would call a storybook ending. The happily ever after so without trying to be irreverent we are at the end of the book and so my heading perhaps even the title of this message is a storybook ending and there are three elements the first picture that Joel paints is this unprecedented prosperity unprecedented prosperity Joel says this in verse 18 and in that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water, and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shatim. Again, and in that day is talking about what we've been talking about the day of the Lord. What we covered last week was God's judgment. We actually covered that at different times. God gathering the nations for the cataclysmic battle of all battles. The battle of Armageddon. The final battle where the kings and the nations of the earth would gather together with all their might to destroy Israel. Thinking that they were finally going to eliminate this blight on humanity. And God was going to be on the side of Israel and vindicate them. And wiped them out. It's that day that he's talking about. The day that he began the chapter with. Chapter 3 verses 1 and 2. For behold in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. It's the time period at the end of the great tribulation when Jesus' second coming is an imminent reality. When Jesus is setting up the millennial kingdom. That's the day he's talking about. And God is reiterating again as we're getting a glimpse of the window that is a closing picture of that portion of redemptive history when it's all culminating and coming together. When all of his people are back in the land and they're worshiping him, he says things will be better than they've ever been. The mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk. He's talking about abundance of crops, abundance of produce, abundance of everything. Wine will be so plentiful because the grapes will be exploding on the vine. There'll be so many of them that it would be almost as though the mountains were dripping. The mountains won't literally drip. But he's just picturing that condition where there's so much abundance that it'll be overflowing. And the hills will flow with milk. The animals won't be groaning anymore. They'll have all the grass they need. Every animal that produces milk that's consumed will have all they need and the milk will be so plentiful nobody will ever remember a time of lack. I was trying to picture what would that sound like to people that at this moment are starving to death and dying of thirst. It would have to be hope that God hasn't forgotten us that one day things are going to be okay. In fact, it's a reminder that God is going to keep His promises and however dark things are now, if you repent, you'll be a part of the blessing. But you see throughout the history of Israel that God has always held out this promise of one day. For example, in Exodus 3.8, He talked about what the land would be like and we've heard the expression of land flowing with milk and honey. That's what he promised them but then their disobedience kept them from getting what was promised. But Joel and other prophets pointed for the day when one day the land flowing with milk and honey will be your reality. The first part of Amos chapter 9 verse 13 it says Behold days are coming declares the Lord when the plowman will overtake the reaper when the treader of grapes him who sows seed when the mountains will drip sweet wine in other words a time when you can't keep track of all that's going so Joel's saying in that day the mountains will drip with wine the hills will flow with milk he continues and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. The idea that the brooks of Judah will flow with water really had to sound incredible. Because what he was basically saying is that water would flow year round. If you've ever lived in a desert climate or been around a desert climate, you understand that the critical thing for life is water. If you know, and I'm no scholar, but people shouldn't be living in Southern California in the numbers they do. It's a desert climate. How does it happen? They got water. They redirected it from elsewhere. But he says, the brooks of Judah will flow with water. The spring will come from the house of the Lord. He's painting a picture of two different realities. They're related, but they're emphasizing different things. The first one is he's saying there's going to be water and it's going to be everywhere. Israel, even now, as is the case with all the Middle East, has to be very careful with water. I've read political-type arguments that say, really, what will ultimately cause the great battle in the Middle East isn't oil, it's water. And even in various countries around the world, somebody builds a dam and they cut off the flow of water. Water is life. But if you go to the Middle East, there's not enough water of a freshwater variety for all the people that live there. I remember the time that I was able to go to Israel. It was such a blessing. But I remember being underwhelmed by the Jordan River. For some reason, I thought it was big. And you look, and it's like, oh, man, there's nothing here. What happens there, and what happened at the time of Joel, what happens today, and I experience this in California, is that certain times of year you get rain, and when you have rain, some of the riverbeds have water in them. So if it rains hard enough, the riverbeds have some water, but most of the year the riverbeds are dry. It's a comical thing if you live where I did, Gene understands it, and rig. the Santa Clarita River is a misnomer. It's a wide trench of dirt. (laughs) So you live there, and they call it the Santa Clarita River, and like a few days out of the year, there'll be water running through it because it rained. The riverbeds are completely dry most of the year. That's the same way in the Middle East. And what Joel is saying, and these people would understand that, and yet even now they're in the midst of drought, he's saying one day the water's flowing all the time. God will provide. There won't be any struggle. You won't be looking for water. It'll be there, and it'll be flowing year-round. And then the second thing that he emphasizes is really a supernatural type thing. But God's going to create a new water source, as it were, that flows directly from Jerusalem. And a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. Now the house of the Lord would be where the Lord is located in Jerusalem. When Jesus reigns on the earth, He'll be there. And it seems like there's going to be supernaturally redirected water during that time. If you read a lot of the scholars, it's hard to know exactly what the area is. In fact, the word shatim apparently just means the acacia tree. If you read the things in Leviticus about the tabernacle and the temple, they use that type of wood. So it's just talking about areas where those trees grow. And it's hard to know exactly where Joel might be referencing him. So the idea really is more of the picture he's creating, that in areas where you don't have water, God is going to bring water. So not only would the current brooks that only have water a little bit of the time are going to be full, God's going to provide new water sources that are going to cover everything. the speculation is probably at least some of the water is going to flow east of Jerusalem towards the Dead Sea. There are at least two other prophets that reference what is likely the exact same circumstance, and they do it in different ways. One is just a short reference in Zechariah 14.8. He says, And in that day, again, he's pointing to the same time period, And in that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. Jerusalem half of them towards the eastern sea and the other half towards the western sea. It will be in summer as well in winter. In other words, he's creating that same idea that you don't have to worry about the rainy season. There is no rainy season. God provides water permanently. But perhaps the more detailed picture, and it's very involved and beyond what I can get into verse by verse, I'd have to study through it. But there's a picture in Ezekiel 47, verses 1 to 12. And I'm going to read it, but it's a picture of what the prophet was shown and it's water flowing out of the house of the Lord. So I'm going to try and read it relatively quickly, but in beginning in verse 1 of Ezekiel 47, he says, "...then he brought me back to the door of the house, and behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house toward the east, for the house faced east. And the water was flowing down from under from the right side of the house from south of the altar." He brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside of the outer gate by way of the gate that faces east. And behold, water was trickling from the south side. Verse 3, when the man went out toward the east with a line in his hand, he measured a thousand cubits and he led me through the water, water reaching the angles. Again, he measured and led me through the water, water reaching the knees. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, water reaching the loins, meaning waist high. Again, he measured a thousand. It was a river that I could not ford for the water had risen, enough water to swim in, a river that could not be forded. In other words, this same type of picture of where the water is just flowing. And he talks about what's growing. And then verse 8, he says, Then he said to me, these waters go out toward the eastern region and go down into the Arabah. Then they go toward the sea being made to flow into the sea and the waters of the sea become fresh. And the scholars would say he's really talking about the Dead Sea and if you've been to the Dead Sea nothing lives there. That's why they call it dead. You can float. It's a weird feeling but it's pretty cool. But he's saying there's going to be so much fresh water that even that dead barren place will have life. So for these original people living in drought they were being given hope of a future day. Perhaps not going to be their future reality in their lifetime But they knew one day God was going to keep his word. Water would flow. No drought, plenty of crops, food and drink in abundance. Everything they didn't have, Joel said, one day God will provide. But as Joel's pointing to that storybook ending, and he starts with unprecedented prosperity, he circles back to the differing fate of God's enemies. And that's the second point that I'll call final reckoning. So we have unprecedented prosperity and then we have final reckoning. Verse 19, Joel says this, Egypt will become a waste and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah in whose land they have shed innocent blood. Again, Egypt and Edom here are being painted as representative examples of the enemies of God. Just like in prior verses that we covered before, Philistia and Tyre and Sidon, which were Phoenicia, were representative. Here, Egypt and Eden are being representatively presented. And God's making it clear. Joel's making it clear. Look, you'll have unprecedented prosperity, but nobody escapes who hurt you. The punishment of Egypt and Edom was because they shed innocent blood of the sons of Judah. Most think that when he says Egypt will become a waste, he's painting a contrast between now and then, meaning at that time, the Nile River Valley was one of the most fertile places anywhere. In fact, to this day, there's still lots grown there. I remember the first thing I ever heard coming out of Egypt was Egyptian cotton. You can still find it today, and it grows in that fertile valley He's just painting a picture of the difference that Israel will now and everywhere flourish and a formerly prosperous place will suffer. Edom was located in the mountainous areas. They had delighted in Israel's suffering. They had not helped Israel when they had opportunities. Everything they had was going to be desolated. It's just a reminder to The hearers, even though God has just said there's going to be a final battle and I'm going to wipe everybody out, don't worry. As Joel's bringing it to close, he's sort of summarizing everything in this storybook ending. Yes, you're going to have unprecedented prosperity, but there is a final reckoning for God's enemies. In fact, if you read down a little bit further in verse 21, it says, and I will avenge their blood which I have not avenged. It's that same idea again. Nobody will escape. No one will get away with anything. Those who have hurt you, those who have tormented you, God will hold accountable. And there's a final aspect of the storybook ending as we bring this study to a close. There's unprecedented prosperity. There's a final reckoning. Finally, there's eternal security. Eternal security, verse 20, but Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem for all generations and I will avenge their blood which I have not avenged for the Lord dwells in Zion. This really brings everything to a close. He's circling back and he's ending everything on a high note. Again, these promises are not new. This isn't the first time we've seen these types of things. The end of chapter 2, Joel paints that picture. Verse 26 of chapter 2, You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God and there is no other. My people will never be put to shame. This is the same Picture. It's all happening. But Judah will be inhabited forever. Jerusalem for all generations. Meaning that during the millennial kingdom, nobody will touch God's people. They'll never again be deported. They'll never again be outcasts. They'll never again be an argument as there is today over who actually owns the land. And that's the mistake even that I do today. I sometimes say, well, it's Israel's land. That's not true. It's God's land. That's the ultimate issue. that God owns it all. And again, with that additional reminder that no one escapes, it says, for the Lord dwells in Zion. God's presence will ensure that his kingdom will never be in doubt. That is a storybook ending. It's the picture of the millennial kingdom and beyond. God will have established justice. Jesus will be ruling and reigning on the earth. I can't comprehend it, but the Bible makes it clear. We'll be there in our glorified bodies with him. The things that we're reading about in Joel, you'll find out which ones I messed up because we'll be there in our glorified bodies. Good Boy, Joe blew that one. If you can find me on the earth, you can tell me. But I'll already know. Yeah, there you go. And actually nobody will care at that point because we're with Jesus. But the point is, the reality, I can't picture it. I, I don't know how to comprehend living in a glorified body. I only know that this body is breaking down and hurting. But I know it's real and I know it's true. And as I look forward and I think about that day, I know I won't experience it in this earthly lifetime, but I know it's true and I look forward to it. I think that was how the original recipients of Joel would have approached the end of this book. Now, I think historically they did repent after they heard the words of Joel. I think God did restore at least that generation's fortunes But as they came to the end of this book, they weren't walking by sight. They didn't have any choice but to walk by faith. And that's where we are. We live every day here. And we're called to live here. We're called to be involved. There's a reason we allow someone like New Life Solutions to come and take some of the precious time on a Sunday morning because we want to impact the world here. There's a reason we support missionaries. There's a reason that we put Pastor Steve's broadcast on the radio. There's a reason that we do all we can to get the Word of God out. We want more people to place their faith in Jesus Christ. But what we also know is that right now, most of the promises that are given to us, or at least the eternal promises, are in the future. We don't live in fantasy land. We look around, this world is a horrible place. It's getting worse. There are things going on within the evangelical part of Christianity that are really distressing. More ministries are under attack, some justifiably, because they've misbehaved. Others are just getting caught in the net such that everybody is being suspected of being bad simply because there's some prominence. If we were walking by sight, I think we'd all curl up in a ball and stay in bed. It's more comfortable. But just as the original recipients looked around and saw nothing but desolation, they could have hope because they were told the word of God is true and one day it'll be okay. And that's how we walk. We walk by faith. Certainly we have promises for now that God is with us. He's given us His Spirit to help us. He's given us His Word. He's given us His church. But like the original hearers of this letter, we have to walk by faith, longing for the day when those promises will be true. And one day, all the promises of God will be reality and we won't walk by faith, we will walk by sight. Read Revelation 22 if you want to get a picture of that future reality even after the Millennial Kingdom and how remarkable and miraculous it is. And perhaps Joel, without the full knowledge, would have echoed, had he known everything that was revealed to the Apostle John, would have said the prayer that the Apostle John did. A prayer that more and more becomes the one of my heart. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let me close our time today in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the promises you've made to your people over thousands of years. Promises that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ and promises that we, most of us Gentiles, have been allowed to become partakers of. Lord, it's so easy to look around at the world around us and get discouraged. Perhaps we don't face physical drought. Perhaps we don't face actual food shortages, but from a spiritual standpoint, things have never seemed so grim. Lord, in our country and in our world, there is a complete absence, it seems, of people partaking of spiritual food. We are in a spiritual drought that goes beyond anything I certainly have seen in my lifetime. And yet, Lord, even in the midst of this, you've called us to press forward, to continue on, to daily repent of our sins. And to be a testimony and a light for You regardless of our circumstances. Lord, help us to walk by faith. And Lord, we long for the day when all of this sin-tainted existence is gone. When we're with Jesus and when You forever establish our eternity. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. It's in His name that we offer our prayers. Amen.